few weeks back, uh, actually a couple months ago, Anita and I had the opportunity uh, to visit a couple different churches. And uh, this goes back, I believe, in the month of August. And interesting, it's one of those things where you're, you're first time in a church and uh, just kind of wondering what it's going to be like. And I, I, what, as I was sitting there, I'm thinking, I wonder what it's like for newcomers coming in our church. Um, just that transfer, thinking this is how I feel. I wonder how, how others feel and just the anticipation. Because here we're so accustomed to, especially those of us that regularly attend, accustomed to the way we always do things. This follows this and this follows this. And that's just, you know, that's our comfort zone and that order is good. We need that. But just walking into that and seeing the different, very, very different churches. And I know some of you have been in different locations as well and have worshipped in different churches at different times. Good experience. Um, glad to be back home, but, but good experience uh, just to see how God does so many different things through so many different types of churches. One church we were at is on the south side of uh, Missionary Baptist Church. And um, just the, the, uh, the worship was exciting. It was the people were so welcoming. In fact, one of the things that was interesting was when we first came in, the usher stopped me and said, hand me a piece of paper and said, you need to fill this out. You need to complete this form um, for us since he, he knew that we were first time visitors. And um, so I could put all the information they asked for, you know, the address, phone number, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, you need to be sure to have that ready for the ushers when they come around for it. So when the ushers came around, Anybody that was there for the first time handed in the, the, the slip of paper with the information. Then, later on in the service that was about two hours long, later on, the I guess you'd call them the host or one of the deacons, stood up and with those slips of paper proceeded to read off the names. And as your name came up, you had to stand up and people welcomed you. Um, that was for first-time visitors. <laughs> Quite an experience, really interesting. Different for us, like I said, bumped us a bit out of our comfort zone. Another church that we visited um, was actually in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And uh, it's a large church, about 600 people. And very much, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, kind of like a theater-type experience. Um, great singing. I mean, the, the um, uh, worship team was CD quality. I mean, he did an excellent job with all the visuals. With, uh, they even had, a, they even had a um, cafe out in the foyer so you could tank up on caffeine before the service. Uh, it was great. It was, it was quite a, I mean, it was great experience. We didn't have anyone, no one came up afterward, uh, I guess just to, so we didn't feel put on the spot. Nobody came up and shook our hands or said hello or welcome or anything like that. Um, but the interesting thing is, and perhaps you've had the experience as well um, in different churches, especially here in Chicago, there's so many different types of churches. The interesting is God uses all kinds. He uses all kinds of... One of the things that struck me was, as I'm sitting there processing, listening, um, what's our church supposed to look like? What are, we, are we supposed to be like this one or that one? And as many different churches that are, as there are out there, that's as many different models you have, and as many different people within a congregation sometimes, that's as many different opinions of how a church ought to look. Interesting... Because we need a model. We all do. We all need something visual. We all need something that we're supposed to attain towards. And what I want to propose today is that we have one. It's found in Scripture. And not that any of these models are bad. I'm not saying that at all. Like I said, God has used so many different types of churches throughout the centuries. But we want, what we want to look at today is a particular model in Scripture. We're going to be looking at, again, at the book of uh, Acts um, back to 
chapter 20 um, of the book of Acts. And just as a review, uh, we're going to be looking at this particular portion has to do with the leadership of a particular church, local body of believers um, there from the book of Acts. But as a review, remember that the book of Acts is a narrative. It is a story that Luke wrote. It covers 30 years of the birth of the church. It's a time of transition. Going from the worship in the synagogue was a difficult thing for the Jews because what they had been doing for thousands of years was bringing animals and sacrificing them. And all of a sudden, this Messiah came along and says, I'm the person, I'm the sacrifice, you don't need to do this anymore. And they could meet on a regular basis with their brothers and sisters, remember Christ's sacrifice through the sacraments. And this was all brand new for the Jewish people. They they just had a hard time grasping it. So Luke records this over the span of 30 years. And remember, also, this is um, illustration. It's meant to illustrate, not meant to instruct. There are instructions in Scripture regarding the the local church. That comes in Timothy, that comes in Titus, that's in Corinthians. Those are instructions, specific instructions for the church. This is illustration. Way back four weeks ago or so, um, one of the things that we came away with was this. We each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with, with God. Not so that we can just be better people, but so that our spirit-filled contribution to the body of Christ brings God glory. Following that, we looked at Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8 and saw the very short life of Stephen, the very first martyr in the church, and how he lived life with an intensity In fact, what we saw was that persecution pushed the church out of the uh, concept of this is regular season into the post-season intensity, saying, we've got to get this right. And how persecution did that and how we need to be living our lives with that same intensity. And then last week, we looked at Acts chapter 15 and discovered that controversy and conflict in the church is a reality, But it's a necessity that that conflict be resolved and resolved according to biblical principles. Now, one of the things that I have um, discovered, and uh, bear with me for a moment as I I pull this illustration out, um, is that each week as we come and we hear God's word proclaimed, sometimes we're able to take what we have learned, it turns us 180 degrees, and we realize that what I have been doing Needs, I need to repent of. I need to turn around completely. Other times, it just kind of shifts us a bit and helps our thinking go in a bit of a different direction. And that's good. Um, we may not remember these specific sermons. That's okay if you forget what I say today. As long as God's spirit within you shifts you a bit in a different direction. When we are um, uh, camping up in, up in the boundary waters, we, have, we navigate by map and compass. And uh, one of the things is, as we come out, let's say we come out onto a certain lake, and we look at the compass, and we look ahead of us, and we look at the map, and we know that we have to take a bearing uh, pretty close, uh, not much room for error, as we navigate across that lake. Now, if we start out just a half of a degree off, as we travel miles and miles, we get to the far end, we're a lot of the ways off. And believe me, been there, done that been lost. That's part of the adventure, right? And, and as you 
look at the compass. You have to look exactly to see where you're going because that first little step is so critical in getting the right compass bearing. That's what I'm talking about today. There might be something within here that God's Spirit is prompting you, just a bit of a turn, just something a little bit different in your thinking that can shift your direction now for later on. So as I say, you know, I'm not saying it's okay to forget what I'm saying. I'm saying that as God's Spirit works in your hearts, that's my prayer today. Now, a question that uh, we've already posed and I want to restate today, and it's a rhetorical question, but why do you come here? Or, or why do you come to a church? Or why this particular body of believers? Now, I've heard, here's what I've heard someone say, and I've actually had someone say this to me. You know, I, I would go to church... But I need to get cleaned up beforehand. Okay? Uh, God knows what I'm like. Everyone there knows what I'm like. And I'd feel like a hypocrite if I went there. God doesn't want me in my current state. I've actually heard that. Let me ask you this. Maybe you've had someone tell you that. Or maybe you're thinking this yourself. Let me ask you this. Let's say you have an illness that requires hospitalization. Do you say, I need to get better before I go to the hospital. They only want well people there. I don't think so. We can come to Christ. He is the great healer. He is the one that we need to come to. And quite frankly, there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to possibly get cleaned up enough for him. Nothing. That's the whole purpose Christ came. If we could get cleaned up for God, Christ didn't need to come. We need him. And some of you might be here today saying... What are they talking about? In fact, just, just if I can tell you this, much of what I'll be talking about today has to do with the church, has to do with believers. And you might be here today saying, what is that? I want to encourage you. After church today, after the worship time, there'll be some prayer counselors coming down, and I want to encourage you, if you don't know for sure that you have crossed over and come to faith in Christ, please take the opportunity to do that because there is no way you can possibly get cleaned up enough for God. That's what Christ is for. He has substituted. He is the substitute for our sins. He is the one that we can come to and say, I trust you for my way into heaven. If you'd like to do that today, I'm offering the invitation now. I'll offer it again uh, at the end of the service. to Please do that. Please come to the place where you can say, I want to trust Christ. Well, back to uh, Acts chapter 20. Um, we have, again, what we're doing is we're skipping over um, chapters. I hate to do There's so much in there, so much in the book of Acts. I'd love to stop and, and just park in a number of places. But what we'll do today is we'll take uh, Acts chapter 20 and verses 17 through eight, uh, 38. And as I, as I reviewed this again, as I was studying this, it's like, once again, I have chosen far too many verses to try to pack into the short time that we have. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll take the, the flyover, we'll, take a, we'll go through each verse and uh, stop and we'll park in some and we'll just read others. There's not really an outline. If you, want to, if you need an outline, uh, just start writing down the verse numbers down the side of the page and that will be your outline because that's what we'll be covering. Now, what we're t- talking about today is, is, in essence, towards the end of Paul's third missionary trip. He had already taken to, left from Jerusalem, left from Antioch, taken off to all parts of the world, wherever God was leading him. And you can read about that in the first 20 chapters of the book of Acts, of all the adventures. Talk about a a book that's packed with uh, action. You know, one of those action uh, films, one of those action books, this would be it. Uh, A lot has taken place. And here was Paul, 
Um, he was going to be talking to the Ephesian elders, as, as we've already read. But let me tell you what took place in Ephesus before this. Uh, the last time he was in Ephesus, there was an all-out, full-scale riot. And it was because of what this message was. The Jews were having a hard time with this. They wanted Paul and all his friends out of the city. So he had left. He had um, um, taken some more time and taken some of his brothers and gone into different parts of Asia. And now he was coming back to Jerusalem because he wanted to get to Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. Now, in order to do that, he had had to kind of catch the right boat at the right time and make his way back to Jerusalem. He saw that he, if he indeed went to see the Ephesian elders, that would be a 60-mile round trip. He couldn't do that and get to Jerusalem in, in, the, in time. So he stopped in a place called Miletus. Now, reading from chapter uh, 20, verse 17 from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Thank you, sir. He sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So they had to travel about 30 miles. Um, prior to this, he had spent approximately, almost, three years in this, what we call a church plant. Uh, he'd spent almost three years spending, just investing his life deeply into the lives of the people there, so much so that he wanted to see the elders on his way back to Jerusalem. Interesting as well, as you, if you were to trace... Uh, Paul's activities uh, throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see that as he went different places, what he did was not necessarily, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to attract a crowd, I'm going to leave. What he did was in each place, he built a core of elders. He drew some qualified men around him, and from that, a church was planted around that body of elders. That's what he did in Ephesus as well. Verse 18, um, I'm going to be reading through this. I'm reading from the NIV. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. He was a person who was there with the people. He didn't stay here, come preach, do his thing, and leave and go back. He was right there with the people. That's the way the church planting is done. That's the way that ministry is done, is there with the people. And that's what he did. And his life was open. Uh, to them, he, was, he said, "You've seen." He was genuine. He showed it. There's no secrets here. And basically, this is his testimonial. It's the only sermon in the book of Acts that Paul gives that is to other believers. The rest of his sermons are to unbelievers, and that message is repent. So here he's talking to believers. In fact, if you were to look, read through the, uh, if you skimmed through it and then compared it with some of the letters like Philippians, Galatians, and so forth, you'd see some similarities because he's talking to brothers and sisters, fellow believers. This is kind of broken down into three parts. Verses 18 through 21 is the past. Verse 22 is the present. And verses 23 through 24 is the future. Verse 19, he says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Now, he's not boasting, he's just simply stating fact. This is how I served. And reminding them, it wasn't a case he's informing them, he's reminding them, this is how I served. And talk about plots, uh, he mentions a plot. There were many plots against him. In fact, right after he became a believer in chapter 9, right after his conversion on the road to Damascus, the Jewish people there in Damascus wanted his life. 
So from that point all the way up to this present, there were Jews who were constantly plotting to take his life. His life was always in danger. Verses 20 and 21. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. It's a bold proclamation. He's saying I did not hold back in any way, but I was very clear in what I taught and, and preached, and that was repentance, even against the threats of death. You see, his, you see the different uh, active verbs in there, what he did? Uh, he served the Lord in verse 19. This is his testimony again. He served the Lord. He preached in verse 20. He taught in verse 20. He also declared in verse 21. Really, verse 21 is a summary of the apostles' activity in the whole book of Acts. It's clear, it's concise, it's direct. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word repentance has come up before. Uh, that's what Peter preached when he was preaching. And that's what, we, that's what our message needs to be as well. I know that's not a popular thing to talk about. But as we approach especially unbelievers, if there's anything that they need in their lives, it is to turn that 180 degrees and turn towards Christ. And that needs to be our message in one way or another. We need to be preaching repentance. Uh, Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. This is why we do it. It's to glorify God. That's our motivating factor. As our light shines, it needs to glorify God. I think sometimes we get off a little bit, sometimes in our motive of why we do that. We think, well, if I do this, I'll feel good about helping others or sharing my faith. Or I want to make their lives better. It's a temptation when we travel to the Philippines and see so much poverty and so much grief there. We somehow want to preach and teach so that their lives will be better. That comes up short as well. Uh, Or so that they'll recognize my act of giving or they'll recognize my testimony and say, wow, what has God done? No. And not so that they appreciate and are thankful for the assistance that I give. It's so that they will give glory to God. That's why I preach repentance, so that they will give glory to God. My good works are an illumination of God himself. I'm obedient only if God has been evident through me. You've got to throw all those other shallow motives off to the side. Those might be some side benefits. But I tell you what, if anything, of anything, and often it's not a felt need, even on our part, the need is repentance and a turning to God. Well, verse 22, we come to the present. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. The word for compelled there is actually a word for bound. where It's one of those things where he's tied up, no choice. The Spirit has bound me. This is what the Spirit wants me to do. He's being committed to being led by the Spirit. Not his choice, the Spirit's choice. And he's very resolute about that because if you read later, you'll see that actually a prophet of God came to him and said, if you go to Jerusalem, you are going to be arrested. Here was a message from God. Maybe that was to stop. Maybe I shouldn't go there. But he did not say that. I'm resolute. I am going. This is what I know that God wants me to do. I know that there are going to be things facing me there, but I am very direct 
and very purposeful in what I know that God wants me to do. And again, what's so bad about Jerusalem? Remember that. This is, this is where the Jewish people, this is the, the center of Jewish worship. And for this guy, this fellow Paul, to come in with this message that these non-Jews, these Gentiles, could come to faith in God through Jesus the Messiah, they just could not get their minds around that because for thousands of years they've been teaching and, and, and preaching and living the, the, uh, the sacrifices and the temple worship. And here was Paul coming in saying, we don't need to do that. That infuriated them, so much so that they were ready to take his life if he showed up. Verse 23. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. This is no adoring uh, adoring crowds on this tour. Uh, Either through divine foreknowledge or just plain common sense, Paul knew it was coming. And again, we, we have no inkling of what this is like. We make it our mission in life to avoid pain. We go on missions trips and say that we're suffering because the airline food is bad. Not so. This is a mission. He was very committed to it. He knows why he's going, and he knows that there's going to be suffering, and he's prepared for that, not just to put on a show, but because his life will then glorify God. And that's why we do things. That needs to be our motive. That's the deep motive of why we need to do things. Verse 24. This is really the key verse in the passage and starts with a key word and followed by perhaps the strongest statement that Paul makes regarding his own personal testimony. He says, however... I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He says, put it on public record. Would I do this? Would you do this? Isn't it our goal in life to stay alive? And he said, that's, that's incidental. My goal in life is to glorify God. Well, think about it. I mean, if you make it your goal in life to stay alive, you're not going to win. We all die, right? So his goal is death or life. I want to finish the task. I want to serve God wholeheartedly, completely. He was completely, wholeheartedly devoted to the task. Self-preservation should fall behind my pursuit of God's will for my life. And you know what? And we can know what God's will for our lives is. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Those of us that are believers, as you go, make disciples of all nations. We don't have to question what God's will is. We know what it is. And so we put all this other stuff to the side and say, this is what I'm passionate about, making disciples of all nations. Now you say, well, that's for missionaries. It's not for me, right? He said, go and make disciples. No, he didn't. He said, as you go. He already assumes you're going to go. And wherever you are, you're going. So as you're going, make disciples of all nations. That's what his will is. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. I'm committed to this task. If there's any task that I'm committed to, it is this. It's not my life. It's not preservation of my life. I'm going to lose that battle if that's all I'm about. It is being committed to the task. Communicating, loving people, bringing them into the kingdom. His task was not building a church 
with an exciting program, thousands of people, and outstanding worship music. The task is testifying to the gospel at any cost. He writes about this later in his letter to Timothy, Timothy, um, 2 Timothy 4. By this time, Timothy was one of the elders at the church in Ephesus, and Paul was writing to him from prison, and most likely Paul's last letter, that at least we have record of. He writes to Timothy, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That's a man with a testimony. That is, a, that is one of those testimonies, that's one of those verse, 20, uh, verse 24 of this chapter that I have looked at again and again and again and say, Lord, I want that. I want that to be my testimony. There's so much other stuff in our lives that we just let distract us from that, to keep central, bringing the word of God to the people around us, being committed to that task. Bart Campolo of Kingdom Works, uh, Tony Campolo's son, said this, You will not change the world in your spare time with your spare change. I like that. You will not change the world in your spare time with your spare change. That speaks to wholehearted devotion. It really does. I think maybe for some of us, maybe the phrase we have the hardest time with is, well, who's trying to change the world? I just come to church, get filled. I like the fellowship, listen to the music and the preaching. That's all I need. Tell you what, changing the world is another way of expressing Matthew 20, 19, and 20, and it's not optional or a part-time activity for any Christian. And it's not us who's doing the changing. It's God. He's simply using us as his instruments. Well, so far, verses beginning in verse 19 is another is a summary of, of ministry, really, in Paul's testimony. We see in verse 19, we see serving. In verse 20, we see words of encouragement to other believers. In verse 20, 21, we see proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. This is all definition of ministry. In verse 22, we see where Paul is spirit-led. He's bound by the spirit. In verse 23, we see suffering. And in verse 24, the completion of the task is everything. The ultimate retirement package, hearing God say, well done, a good and faithful servant. Verse 25, Paul continues his testimony. He says, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Now it's possible he did visit Ephesus again. It's not recorded in the book of Acts, but Paul anticipates that strong possibility that he would never see some of them again. These were some of the believers, some of the brothers that were so close to him. But he's saying, in essence, not about me. It's about the ongoing work of the Spirit in the lives of the people. It's about his Spirit working. Especially in those lives, the ones there in Ephesus that he was so close with. Uh, Verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, notice that word hesitated. And if you write in your Bible, circle that and draw a line up to verse 20. 
He says, you know that I have not hesitated. Uh, New Living Translation says, shrank back. He was not shy about what God had put on his heart to do. He was not hesitating. He knew exactly what it was. He didn't second-guess himself. It's right there. I have not hesitated. It's the very same word in the original language. He's, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Basically, he's saying, since I have been obedient in proclaiming God's word, God does not hold me accountable for the lies of those who choose to ignore him. Now, on the flip side, there's a greater degree of responsibility, I believe, for those, of, those believers, we who have the truth. I think it applies directly, especially to us here in the United States, Some of us have 10, 15 Bibles on our shelves. Uh, There's a Christian radio station just about anywhere on the dial. There's many churches on many streets. We have a great responsibility to to respond to it and to share it. In verse 28, this is where he addresses the elders directly, and he says to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, he uses the sheep, shepherd, and flock imagery that helps us. I don't know if if you're like me. It helps if you have a picture in your mind of what it is it's supposed to look like. Well, he uses this, in fact, echoes what John wrote about in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. That is John chapter 10. And also, oh, Peter picks up on this. In 1 Peter 5, he says Jesus is the chief shepherd. So what he's saying is that keep watch over yourselves as the under-shepherds. He's speaking directly to the elders. Now, it struck me as I have heard this recently stated. Um, it's very sobering because we as elders, the greatest ministry that we can have in this church is living a holy life. You think about that. If we didn't, what good would we be? If we have a ministry at all to the people of this church, it begins with ourselves living a holy life. This is what Paul is telling the elders from Ephesus. I think it's easy sometimes we, we, we kind of let our guard down at times. And this, is, this goes for all of us, not just elders. It's a dangerous thing. I think we should always be on a red alert. Always be discerning. You never know what's going to come, even from good-sounding things. We as elders, sometimes we want to believe the best in people. We realize that even well-intentioned, culturally acceptable proposals, resolutions, traditions can be dangerous to our spiritual lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. Do you pray for your elders? Pray for discernment. Please pray for discernment. This is one of the most difficult things. We need to live a holy life. We know that. But pray for us. Pray for discernment. Pray for one another for discernment. And notice in here, in this verse, who made these individuals elders. Verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. It's the Holy Spirit that makes elders. They are recognized and appointed by the leadership of the church and they are affirmed by the people. It is God who makes elders. Luke actually records three different words 
for elder in this short in this short passage. Verse 17, he uses the word when he addresses um, Paul addresses the people. He says, "Presbyteros." That's the word, and it's it's translated elder, I believe, in most translations. He uses the word presbyteros. And in verse 28, he writes, over, it's translated overseers, but it's the word episkopos. And then in verse 28 as well, there's a verb in there called poimenine, and it has to do with shepherd. All three of these, the point is, all three of these describe one office. That is the office of elder. Not three different people, but it's one office, one elder, with these three different descriptions. Presbyteros carries with it the idea of maturity. Elderly, I guess. Some of us. Um, but it carries with it the idea, the concept of maturity. Um, episcopos, overseers, carries with it the idea of authority, oversight. And then poinaninane, shepherd, carries with it the concept of responsibility and all those are packaged together in the office of elder that's what scripture teaches I think um, it's also important to notice that throughout scripture throughout the New Testament there is always a group of elders referred to in the leadership of the church it's elders in the plural not a single person I think we've got carried away sometimes with the idea that there must be a CEO in charge. You've got to be somebody in charge. Let me tell you something, folks. That is not biblical. That is something that we have carried into... In, this is something in the, in the capitalistic, in the uh, American culture, we think we need a CEO to be in charge of something. And there's, there's merit to that that does help in, in organizations. But this is the church. And what Scripture teaches is that there is a plurality of elders who are leading the church. It's always in the plural. Some say, well... That's how things work the best. Look at so-and-so. Look at this. That's pragmatism. We can't argue from pragmatism. We have to argue from God's word. What does God's word say about it? It doesn't matter if it just it works. There are a lot of things that work. What does God's word say? That's what we need to go back to repeatedly. So, so, uh, so common for the pastor-CEO model, we've even come to accept it, even to the point where it's taught by well-educated, well-funded God-fearing believers. But my friends, it's not biblical. There is one head of the church, and that is Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. It is the singularity of Christ's rule. The Corinthians were confused about this. So Paul had to write them a letter and straighten them out. He said, there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. Another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? And the answer is no. There is one head. Christ is the head. There are many temptations for us to follow, especially today. A major evangelical organization seeks to develop church leaders and states as its objective to foster church innovation and growth through strategies, programs, tools, and resources to identify, connect, 
and help high-capacity Christian leaders multiply their impact. This, my friends, is the language of Western society. It is business principles and it is organizational techniques. It's all helpful to some degree, but dangerous to a church when we are in such a consumer-driven culture. I don't see this in Scripture. I see Philippians chapter 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And again in chapter 3, Paul writes, another part of his testimony, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's biblical. That's what the church is to look like. That's, those are the principles on which we need to base ourselves. I was talking with the staff earlier this week, and we were talking about some of the seminars that they've been to, and one came up as far as the title of a seminar was Breaking the 400 Barrier as in attendance, as in that's the objective. You know what? I want to see every single seat in this church filled. I want that. Many of you want that as well. That's not our objective, folks. That is not why we were here. Let me tell you something. The beauty or success of the church is not in its people, its programs, its buildings, but how closely the body resembles the head that is Christ. Can I say that again? The beauty or success of the church is not its people, its buildings, its programs, but how closely the body resembles Christ. It's Christ alone. That's who we need to be resembling. So many models out there for us to imitate. You see them, I see them. We ought to be like this. We go to these seminars, there's a lot of them available. Make your church like this. We read a lot of books. You can be the natural church. You can be the simple church. You can be the sticky church. I tell you what, here's the church we need to be. It's in Scripture. It's right there. You want to know what we're supposed to be like? Read God's Word. That's where it is. And according to verse 28, one of the functions of the body of elders is to draw the people into that closer resemblance. Resemblance. A deeper walk with God. That's why we're here. If we can say we do anything, we need to influence our brothers and sisters into a deeper walk with God. We're not here, excuse me, we're not here to rule or look down on. I told you I was going to park in some verses. I'm still in verse 28. (laughs) Uh, We're not here to rule over or look down on. That's autocratic leadership. That's not eldering. Okay? We're also not here to see if we can get enough votes to pass our ideas and values. That's democratic leadership. Biblical leadership is neither. Biblical leadership means there's one head, one shepherd, under shepherds serving the body. It's not a democracy. It is not autocratic leadership. Alistair Begg says this, The church is led by a plurality of elders, some to be responsible for the leadership of others, all to be responsible to the leadership of Christ. 
some to be responsible for the leadership of others, all to be responsible to the leadership of Christ. Verses 29 through 31 continues the shepherd and flock picture for us. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. See, the picture is, you know, I have these shepherds sitting on the wall, uh, drinking their lattes with their backs to the sheep, and these wolves come in and devour and take them in. These are wolves from outside. And he's saying, don't do that. Be on your guard. Watch over the sheep. On the other hand, the shepherds also need to watch out for those sheep that come in looking like other sheep. And the shepherds are standing there. All of a sudden, the sheep are following something or somebody out the door some other way. And he's saying, be on your guard because both of these can happen. That's part of the role of the elder, is to protect and to watch for this. The church, see, the church is able to do something that no other organization can do. It can protect and it can provide. It provides both spiritual food and also soul, what we call soul care of its members. I think it's challenging sometimes because we think, you know what, I'd like to come to church, but I just wish I wouldn't have to engage. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have to be a part of it. I don't want people to know my business. Well, being part of a church, that's the advantage of being a part of a church because that's what brothers and sisters come alongside and say, can I help you with this? Is there something that we need to talk about? Can I pray for you for something? I think with the church membership, sometimes it would be easier to move and start over in a new place. You ever thought that? than to change and begin living as a true disciple among all these people that know me so well. It's true. It's path of least resistance. And you know what? As far as for me, if I were thinking, you know what would keep me uh, from staying and changing? Why I want to move? Pride. Sin. That's what would keep me. We don't want to change. We want all the other people to change, but not us. Someone asked me recently, there's nobody, nobody here in this assembly, in this body of uh, believers, somebody asked me recently, we're thinking of leaving our church. We want to write a letter to the elders. And I appreciate it. That's a, it's a good thing to do. So many times somebody leaves and sometimes the elders don't even know about it. But this person wanted to write a letter to the elders. And I said, and, and they asked me, I said, what, what should we tell them in the letter? What's your advice? She said, you're an elder at the church. What would you, what would you tell them? Hmm. I said, well, first, determine if it's a doctrinal issue. If it's something theological or doctrinal, you need to spell that out and help them understand what you believe. If it isn't, here's what I think you ought to do. First, in the letter, explain how your leaving will help the church. Okay? Secondly, I want you, you should explain how your leaving is going to help your own spiritual life. And thirdly, how your leaving... And going to the other church, how that's going to help the other church. And if you can do that, and I, I, I don't know, you know, maybe we can. If you can do that, then I think that's a good move. The person thanked me and left. And <clears throat> <laughs> you notice at the end of verse 31, um, Paul writes again about tears. Now, this is, the, this is the second time it's come up in this, in this uh, sermon by Paul. It came up first 
in verse 19, and here it comes up again in verse 31, and if you drop down to verse 37, you'll see that they're weeping. This is, this is significant. This is, a, this is soul care. This is expensive. You know, emotionally, to truly care for people. And I'll go, but I, you know, don't ask me to care for people because then I get all, you know, tied up or whatever inside. I know that's part of soul care. Believe me. You know, and I know, weeping over a brother or sister in Christ breaks our hearts. That's soul care. Paul is showing this right here. He's saying with tears, with tears, I've come to you. I just want to know, that's an elder. That's an elder. Someone who, who, whose the, the lives, of the, the spiritual lives of the people around him bring him to tears. I have, I've seen that. Our, our elders will sit and pray and talk with one another to the point of tears over our brothers and sisters. Verse 32. Essentially, verse 32 is a word of dedication. It's a blessing. It's a benediction. It's a summation of all he's been teaching them. Now I commit to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. This is their elder. The one they have known since the beginning, giving them a blessing, committing them to God, and turning them over to God. It's a hard thing to do, like sending your child off to kindergarten or college or something. But saying, these are, God, these belong to you. These, these precious people belong to you. And that's what Paul is doing. In verses 33 through 35, Paul reminds them of his service to them. Uh, verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had an understanding of the stewardship of the resources that God had given him. They weren't for him to keep but to give away. And I think I mentioned this before. I'll, I'll briefly touch on it again. We get so tied up in the here and now and gathering things for us in this life. And I saw this illustrated recently in, a, in the book that uh, Anita and I were reading together where he gives the illustration of you wouldn't go into a motel room. Let's say you're going you're to go somewhere and stay for a week and you go out and start buying things for the motel room because you want to make it look better. You do that? No. You buy things from the motel room? Well, what are we doing here on earth? How much are we trying to accumulate for ourselves? John Piper, in the book, Don't Waste Your Life, writes this. <clears throat> the world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. That's true, true Christian devotion where we find that God is so satisfying that these things really don't matter and we let go. Verses 36 through 38 is, is his farewell. And uh, picture, as I read this, picture this. This is kneeling together on the beach, arms around one another. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. 
And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. What a picture of a heart of an elder, of of a beloved brother, reaching deep into the lives of his elders, fellow elders, um, from the city of Ephesus. And what a privilege I think it is for us to be a part of a body of Christ. It's an honor to be a part of the body of Christ. For one thing, we don't have to worry about who's in charge and, and does that person care about us. Christ is in charge. Of course he cares about us. But where are you? The outside looking in? Inside wondering what all the fuss is about? Wishing these people would leave me alone? Maybe you're content to come each week, warm a chair? What's keeping you from going deeper, being committed to the task? And don't say, it's all these sinners around me. I'm tired of that one. It's their fault. My friends, no it isn't. Maybe you're hearing you want more. It's a good thing. Hunger is a powerful motivator. Don't satisfy yourself with junk food. But dig into God's word as a steady, steady part of your diet. Years ago, um, this um, news article came across Associated Press. The decomposed corpse of a German man was found alone in his bed after nearly seven years. Western city in uh, Germany. Police said in a statement the man was 59 and unemployed at the time of his death. He most likely died of natural causes on November 30, 2000, the date he received a letter from the welfare office found in his apartment. The man's apartment was in a building with offices and apartments, many of which are now empty. And here's the interesting quote that the police officer said at the end. No one missed him. No missing person report was ever filed. None of us should ever find ourselves in a place where no one comes looking for us. We have the opportunity. The church is God's idea. Its history is 2,000 years old. It's for us here, and it will be in the future. And we have a clearly defined task. We don't have to wonder what it is what we're supposed to be doing, and we're not spinning our wheels. We have the opportunity to influence lives for all of eternity. that our desire would be for the glory of God, actively engaged in accomplishing the task, ministering in our church and outside these walls, led by the chief shepherd and served by his under-shepherds. That's the church. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we have so much to learn. There's so much about your church that we need to know. There's so much about living for you so much about what it means to be a believer and what it means to actually live out the principles found in your word. Teach us. Our prayer is that you would teach us. Help us not to neglect your word. Help us not to go chasing down other good ideas, but go back to your word again and again to seek out what it is that you would have us to be and do. We realize that it starts with us as individuals. We realize that each one of us within us needs to come into right relationship with you and deep, deep daily fellowship with you. We desire that. 
We commit this church to you in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.